Welcome to the Open Door Podcast. My name is John. I'm the co-pastor of the Open Door Church here in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. We as a church in the middle of Lent now are going deep into the practices of the Open Door. So we have these five practices that have helped guide us as a church for over a decade to be the church in our context, in our families, in our personal lives, in our neighborhood, um, these five practices um, have helped uh, helped guide us as a church to 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 be the church both spiritually, communally, and missionally in our context. So today we are still on the second of those practices. We started with listening, kind of went deeply into what it looks like to listen both to God through prayer. Uh, and also to the world, to our neighborhoods, to um, those in our world who have been oppressed. How do we be better listeners? We started with that, and now we're on the practice of learning, which is really similar to listening. You have to listen to be able to be a good learner. Um, So we're going to hear from Dr. Peter Scapelli today. He's a member of the Open Door Church. He's an elder there. He's also a professor at Carnegie Mellon University in the School of Design. I think you'll get a lot out of what he has to say. He's a really humble and brilliant thinker around, um, around sustainable design. Um, so check it out. Okay, so... What we've been what we've been doing um, is just talking with community members, church members, and um, and folks about some of our mission partners, but just talking about our practices. And um, we're in we're into the second practice now. And this week, this Sunday, we're going to have uh, instead of a sermon, it's going to be a chance for people to just talk about. What does listening and learning look like in their lives? Um, so it gives me an extra opportunity to do another uh, conversation like this about the practice of learning. And you came to mind. I'd love to talk about just what that practice means to you, how it plays out in your life. And like one of the things that I'm trying to 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 do is, I don't know, just to think about the practices beyond where I've thought about them in the past and kind of push the the boundaries of what is like my uh, intentional spiritual practice compared to what is what do I do in life that, oh, maybe God cares about all of life, you know, maybe all of my life has the potential to like really matter. And I think your work and your like just what I know of you, I think that's very true. So yeah, I, why don't you introduce yourself a little bit for people who might not know you and tell us what you do and what you're up to in life. Okay, so uh, my name's uh, Peter Scupelli. I'm, uh, well, I mean, maybe I'll start with a, with a professional. I'm uh, the Nirenberg uh, Associate Professor in Design at Carnegie Mellon uh, School of Design. Um, and I, I was basically hired to teach interaction design. I just finished my PhD in, in human computer interaction. So um, I, I kind of thought I was being hired for that skill set. And um, in my first meeting with my uh, new department head, she sort of told me that. Um, she was shifting the whole uh, mission and vision for the School of Design towards sustainability. Mm. And so I, I went from thinking like, finally, you know, I've been through all these studies and, and learning all this stuff. I've got this job and where in which I, I'm an expert, you know, Yeah. <laughs> to, oh my goodness, like, I don't know anything about sustainability. Um, I, I, you know, uh, I, I wonder how this is going to go, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> And, uh, and so, you know, instead of thinking of it as uh, like, this is like, what do I have to say about sustainability? It was sort of like, well, I'm starting a new job. I know that she's going to push us in this direction. And uh, it was sort of like, well, I, I can learn about sustainability. I can figure out um, what I could have to teach about it. And, and so I started doing like the really obvious stuff. Like I started seeing who's, who else is working on sustainability 
what are the things that they're um, working on and then trying to map it back to like, what are we doing in design and what are we not doing? Sort of, I, I knew where the target was and I started noticing that people that were working on sustainability in other fields were talking about year 2050 and year 2100, whereas so much of my work had been about how do you prototype it faster? How do you do the research faster? Mm. <laughs> how do you make the product, you know, out the door faster? And um, and so it was sort of like the aha there was kind of like, oh, uh, design and time is really important. And in design, we're just focusing on short term. We're not thinking long term. So that was sort of one area I identified. The other was the more I looked into sustainability. And I think here I'll take a make a little parentheses. You know, I thought about sustainability on a personal level, but I hadn't thought of it as part of my profession. That there's sort right. of like this, this separation between the two. Yep. And um, the more I looked into it, the more it became really clear to me that to design for sustainability is to design for a specific value set. Um, and basically, what you're saying is we're going to do stuff today that doesn't take away our collective tomorrow. Hmm. Um, whereas so much of design had been about designing for efficiency, for effectiveness, for uh, uh, financial viability. Um, and your personal values might be something that you kind of park at the door when you're working with a client or trying to come up with ideas. Um, it was sort of, you saw yourself as a technician just doing the job. Um, but for sustainability, I sort of saw that that approach, sort of the modernist view, yeah. Um, was not um, was not okay because if you're going to do things today that don't take away or tomorrow, there's some things that you have to just take off the table. Like th that is not the solution. That is actually the problem. <laughs> right, right. We can't, we can't do that. And that reminds me of like of you know indigenous people's way ways of living. You know they talk about um, our effect uh, today what we do today affects, you know, to the seventh generation, um, things like that. So it's like, uh, a, a looking, looking back, uh, to what we've learned from indigenous people. Is that, have you found that to be true? Oh, I, I, absolutely. So like, uh, what would your, the seven generational thinking that you're referring to is from the Iroquois mm -hmm. nation, uh, from Pennsylvania. And they sort of, that was a standard. They measured their decisions, um, by was like, how is it going to affect people seven generations down? Oh, wow. Um, and, um, but that's a value proposition. That's sort of like, uh, if you, if, if you're thinking about the, uh, positive impact seven generations down, there's certain things that you can't do. Um, mm -hmm. and, and that's okay. Um, but which is very different than we can do anything. Uh, it just has to be a little sleeker, a little sexier and sell a little bit better. <laughs> <laughs> right. And yeah. so that was a, a big shift for me as a designer. And to get back to your theme of learning, it was sort of like, well, how do we design for values? Um, um, because all the methods and processes that I had learned um, and mastered, like, did not take that into account. Hmm. And then the other question was like, how do we align the short term design that we're doing to accomplish like these longer term goals. That was another thing that I didn't really know how to do. Um, hmm. Give me an example of like some, uh, some of the short term goals that you've been thinking about recently that that kind of fit into that long term thinking. Yeah, so uh, right now I'm teaching a class uh, called design for climate change. Uh, and in it, um, you know, I, this class sort of was born when the IPCC uh, report came out in 2018, in which mm -hmm. they sort of said that um, if we don't reduce carbon emissions by at least 50% uh, by year 2030, uh, we won't be able to contain uh, climate warming to one and a half degrees Celsius and things are going to get really bad for every life form on the right. planet. Right. <laughs> so. I sort of had this moment of quiet despair. Um, yeah. And I was like, I don't know what to do. Um, this seems really bleak. Um, but then, you know, the next thought that I had is, well, actually, I, I do have the privilege of working with really smart people. And, and those are my mm -hmm. students. And 
maybe instead of quietly despairing about this stuff, um, we can turn this into a learning opportunity and um, figure out like what kinds of things should we be doing in the short term to get us to that long-term goal of 2030 of reducing carbon emissions by uh, 50%. And I think the other goal that they laid out was 100% reductions by year 2050. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I, I pitched it to the students like that. Like this is the, you know, in, in case you missed it in the news, this is what uh, showed up. Here's the problem. What are we going to do? <laughs> right, right. But right. that, I mean, you you brought that problem to them without having, without knowing what they were going to say or do and without having the answer. Right. But I mean, as a Christian, I think one of the most important things that I've learned is that we need to act in faith. Yeah. And so, uh, and what that means is that you might not know what the plan is for you or, um, but you're going to move forward uh, in, in what you believe to be the right way of moving forward based <laughs> on your values. Mm -hmm. um, and even though it might not be clear, like how it'll work out, or if this is even a good idea, it could be a terrible idea. Mm -hmm. um, but, but acting in faith is sort of like you're putting yourself out there and um, sort of hoping for the best. Um, and so, you know, in, in a sense, like uh, being a university professor at a tier one research uh, institution and, you know, getting up to the podium and saying like, here's a problem and I don't really know how to solve it. Let's figure this out together. Like, right. <laughs> very, very humble, right? Yeah, very, <laughs> yeah. Um, but I think it's okay to, it's okay to, um, to say like, we're here to learn. Like nobody knows how to do this. Let's figure out how to do it. Like, uh -huh. I ca yeah, I kind of hear you saying the, the bigger the problem, the big, like the bigger the need, but also the more need for humbleness. Oh, absolutely. And I, I couldn't, I couldn't be, have been more impressed by my students because they were sort of like, let's figure this out. You know, and uh, we created this environment where we're all learning from each other. Hmm. Um, and there's just this excitement in the classroom because like it was sort of like it wasn't like one person was like taking information and trying to get it into other people's brains. We were trying to create it together. Mm -hmm. um, I maybe had more experience with working on a design for sustainability. Um, but, um, you know, again, it was sort of. Uh, together we did stuff. And so at the time, I didn't, I knew that there was a Nobel Prize winner. Um, there's several at Carnegie Mellon, but mm -hmm. there was one that got it for uh, the climate. Mm -hmm. And so um, this is a professor, Ed Rubin. He was on the IPCC panel when they got the Nobel Prize. Okay. And I just reached out to him and I said, look, I'm working on this topic. And I thought you might have, like, could you do a guest lecture with my students? Could you tell us about your work? And, um, you know, and he was like, oh, sure, this is exciting. I'll come in. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. Um, but like, you know, what a privilege to just uh, sort of stumble into like these people. Um, but again, that's because I was looking. Uh, mm. And, uh, you know, Ed Rubin and his engineering students had cal calculated the carbon footprint for CMU mm. at campus. And so, um, you know, that the project that we were doing, there was like the first part was we calculated our individual carbon footprints. Mm -hmm. And it was like, how would you reduce it by 50%? Um, and then, I mean, the first thing is that nobody in the class had calculated their carbon footprints before. So it was mm -hmm. kind of like, and then there was like this sense of collective depression. Like once we saw them, like people <laughs> were, I mean, I, I I've, found, yeah, I've yeah. been there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and it was like, well, how do we solve it from an individual perspective? Um, and then with Professor Rubin, we used his calculations to say like, what would an institution like Carnegie Mellon have to do uh, to reduce its carbon footprint by at least 50%? And uh, working on top of all these calculations that, uh, that Professor Rubin had done with his students and sort of trying to design solutions. And, um, but again, it was, it was a learning adventure mm -hmm. uh, for all of us. Mm. So like, well, I'm just curious, what were some of the, what were some of the outcomes of that, that work that, that you did with Professor Rubin and 
overall, uh, you know, CMU, is that, does that even seem like a possibility? Oh, absolutely. I think, I mean, CMU is an incredible place. They're doing a lot of things to try to reduce impact mm-hmm. on the planet. I think the, the the first and most obvious way is like through doing a lot of this groundbreaking research, um, but also through the operations of the campus. So for example, um, all energy is renewable on campus. Mm. And so it comes from a wind farm in Illinois. Mm. And um, so, I mean, I still feel bad when I see the lights on when they could be turned off. Right. Uh, and so th- there's, I think, uh, the, the source of the energy, but also the use of the energy. Yep. Uh, and so uh, I think um, th- those are s- some examples. I mean, another is uh, right now the university is in the middle of the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals audit. Hmm. And so it's uh, the first university in the world to try to say, like, how does everything that we do map to the 17 Sustainable Development Goals? And um, trying to understand, like, are, are we this, in what ways are we part of the solution? And in what ways are we still the problem? Yeah, that's um, awesome. They're the, you said they're the first, you're the uh, CMU is the first university to do this. Yep. yep wow. Yep. And, uh, New York City, I think, was the first city to to measure themselves with the uh, sustainable development goals of the United Nations. And these goals were kind of created for at the nation level. Mm-hmm. And so what you're seeing here is like cities, the city of Pittsburgh is incredible in this way, like uh, is doing a lot of work to sort of figure out how to become more sustainable. Mm-hmm. Um, but also then uh, institutions are, are trying to ask the question uh, of like, w- what can we do to make uh, the world a better place, mm-hmm. uh, concretely. So these are some of the, I think, higher level things. What we discovered in my class was, uh, uh be really personal about this. So my carbon footprint in 2018, about 70% of it was fl- getting on an airplane mm. yep. and flying, flying places to give a lecture or teach a workshop. And, so pause, uh, pause right there because everybody should know that you ride your bike and walk like pre-pandemic, all, almost everywhere we live, we live a block away from each other, and uh, rain, snow, dark, whatever. Peter is on his bike. Like you, you already really put this into practice and care about it. So therefore, flying is the thing that that still had some work to do. Okay, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, and it was, um, you know. Um, I, just to, to build off of that, when I got married in 2004, I remember with my uh, wife, Kelly, like some of the conversations were about like, you know, I wanted to put compact fluorescent everywhere. Yeah. And she was sort of like, oh, but those are the, you know, you can't put them on the front of the house. Those are the ugliest. Like, <laughs> <laughs> And so like, um, I've always been looking for ways to do better. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think, you know, something happened, you know, I mentioned how when I was hired in 2011, my department had um, mentioned about the shift of the mission, but there's another really important thing that happened in 2011 as well in my life. And that was, um, uh, Kelly was, became pregnant. And so uh, for me, that was like a life-changing event because all of a sudden, you know, my, my personal virtues of like mm. using the right light bulb and composting and riding my bike and all of that kind of became like secondary. I started to think of, you know, not, not just like, how can I be a good person? Um, that's something that I'm constantly trying, trying to get better at. But I started to think of like, how can I make the world a better place for my son and yeah. for his lifetime? Yep. You know, cause, um, and I think I realized that one of the ways that I could have the most impact in the world was through the work that I was doing. So. Basically, I teach people how to design, mm-hmm. and then they go on to work for a companies and organizations and start their own. And if they could really learn uh, about sustainability and how to um, reduce their impact or do better things mm-hmm. in the world, then I could have a lot of impact through them because they, they go on to work for these really important companies. And I sort of see them as uh, sort of like Trojan horses, like if I can get them into those places of power and money and they can help steer that power and money towards making the world a better place Mm -hmm. Um, because of stuff that they learned with me, then like that's, I'm really privileged to have that opportunity, but that's how I can have impact in the world. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so getting back to the 70% uh, of my carbon footprint yeah. as, as flying. So, you know, all of us, because we, we, you know, the students and I would then show each other our footprints and we discuss it. One of the things that we sort of agreed on was that we weren't bad people. Hmm. Like we felt guilty, like now that it was clear what our carbon mm-hmm. footprint was. And we started to ask the question, well, why are we behaving this way? What is it that makes it um, so easy to have these carbon footprints? And in my case, it was, I'm, you know, on the, I was on the tenure track and the way um, tenure track professors are evaluated is like, do you have an international reputation mm. and uh, national and international reputation? And um, and so how do you evaluate that? Well, one way to uh, tick that box is you go present at international conferences. Um, another way that you do that is you go teach at workshops in other universities. Mm-hmm. And so I was basically, I basically had uh, a huge carbon footprint because I was trying to hold on to my job, right? Because yeah. that's the, the metric with which I was being measured. And, uh, you know, my family lives in Italy. So uh, to be a good son and a good brother and a good uncle, like I like to go visit them yeah. <laughs> every once in a while. Um, and so we started asking like, well, what is it that makes... Uh, flying so easy and and why are we doing it? Like we're we're not bad people. We're just sort of caught in this context that um, leads to carbon emissions. And so we use this uh, future studies method called um, causal layer analysis that was invented by a Pakistani Australian um, professor called uh, Sohali Nyatula. And it sort of says that reality operates on four levels. There's the behavior level, then there's like the infrastructure and system level. Then beneath it, there's a worldview level. And then beneath that, there's the myths and metaphors. And so we we, we looked at the behavior, like in my case, flying. Uh, for other people, it might be like uh, eating a meat-rich diet or um, then like, what are the systems that allow you to have that behavior? Mm-hmm. What is the worldview uh, that, that makes that possible? And what are the myths and metaphors that, um, and Yatula, I think, is brilliant in saying that people want to change the behavior, but they don't want to get into the depths of the myths and metaphors in the worldview, which is yeah. actually what's driving everything above it. And so in my case, we understood, you know, why I was getting on the plane. Um, and then we started to think, well, what, how could the university evaluate um, tenure track people without requiring them to go to international conferences or how do we change international conferences so that they're not such a carbon like uh, event? Yeah. And so we started questioning like, how do we design uh, for, for a different world? How do we create a different world? Um, and, you know, and there was a, a PhD student, um, a, a Ken Holstein, who was on the job market. And he was like uh, appalled by his carbon footprint. You know, he was like, oh my goodness. You know, I'm just as bad as Peter, you know, <laughs> and uh, he's, he's, he, he started to make like policy decisions for himself. Like one of them was, I'm not going to travel um, if I can avoid it. Right. So he people would ask him to give a guest lecture and he was on the job market and he would say, well, you know, I, I can't travel now, but I'm happy to do a Skype lecture. And so th- this for him was sort of like a, a scary thing to do, because usually um when you visit a places where you do all the networking, you get to know people and he was on the job market. So like, this is exactly what he should have, should have been doing. Um, but he was like, Oh no, it, it turned out to be really easy. I, I didn't have to deal with the jet lag and people were happy, you know, um, to have me visit, you know, virtually. And this yeah. was before, before COVID, right? So oh, this, was, yeah. this was a strange thing to sort of say. Um, right. And, and the other thing is, in, so in Ken's CLA, he realized that um, uh, for academics, going to a conference or, or going to give a lecture is kind of the prize that you have. Like you, you lead this kind of monastic life yeah. of trying to <laughs> generate new knowledge. But then the prize is you, you get to go to a conference and talk to people and, and, and maybe see a different place. And, and so like not traveling was actually... Um, taking the, you know, the, the nice thing out of the mix. Um, but, but you really start to understand what are the values? What are the ideas? 
what are the myths uh, that we're living by? So another myth was like in person is better mm-hmm. uh, or, you know, travel is cheap. Mm. Um, you know, and yeah. What's the, what's the true cost of, you know, flying to Europe to, to speak for a couple hours and fly back home. Right. 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 And, but, but, but you need a way to sort of systemically um, take that apart mm. And then you can start to design solutions, you know, and some solutions are going to be at the individual level. Mm-hmm. Uh, other solutions are going to be at the uh, uh, policy level. And, you know, policy could be you make a policy like for yourself, like Ken did, um, or it could be that as a family, you decide, you know, here's a policy. This is what we believe. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is the rule we're going to live by. I'm, I'm kind of reminded of the the, the rule of life uh, uh, seminar that, uh, uh, the bells run. Um, yeah. And so like, again, like, you know, you're starting to see how these mixing of ideas um, mm-hmm. sort of happen from like the, the personal to the professional. Um, it could also be a policy idea that the organization that you work for um, decides, right? So going back to the the, the case of um, my carbon footprint, I started to inquire around CMU if um, I could uh, submit an expense report for um, climate mitigation action. So get uh, Mm. carbon carbon offsets for the flying that I had to do. The the flying that I couldn't put off, like could I, um, uh, you know, pay somebody to plant trees to reabsorb that carbon basically is what it came down to. And they're like, well, we don't know. There's no policy about that why don't you buy your carbon offsets and submit your expense report and then we'll see what happens. So how did it go? Um, So again, I I guess this is an example of organizational learning. And so I I did just that and it went through fine. Nobody batted an eye or um, said anything about it. Uh, But, you know, you kind of have to, I think, this is something I said earlier, like operate in faith mm-hmm. and sort of like hope for the best. Um, but uh, I think uh, as a Christian, you sort of know that you might not know what what it is um, that you're up against or, um, but, you know, we have to behave as we believe is correct mm-hmm. and, and not worry about the details. And there's no guarantee, of course, but, mm-hmm. but, but that's like, epistemologically when you're working within faith is like, you don't know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, so you brought up uh, the rule of life, which we've talked you know, we talk about a lot at open door, haven't a whole lot real recently. I think we're going to do a rule of life workshop um, late, like late spring, probably after, right after Easter is, is what I'm thinking. And what the rule of life is for those who don't know, it's, it's comes from the monastic tradition, but it's simply building into like your, your personal daily and weekly practices, just ways that you want to be. Maybe it's, you know, spiritual practices of 20 minutes of meditation in the day and you you're intentional about that. And it's a part of your rule of life, but so it can be really broad. Nobody has a, Nobody has a template and says, this is what has to go in it. So for you, Peter, like, what does it look like, whether you have a really descriptive rule of life or not, um, what, what does it look like to have those spiritual practices that maybe look like what we would expect and relate them to the things we're talking about, the ways of living in the world that that are so important to, I mean, at least to you and I, and I know many people at Open Door. Yeah, I mean, I, I have to go back to like a lot of the things that I learned at the Open Door that helped me uh, shift my career and my work. Um, mm. And, you know, even serving on, on the Open Door, I remember when I was asked to serve on the personnel committee and I started to sort of like, I, I didn't know what that entailed, but it was basically just uh, checking in with uh, open door staff, finding out like what their job description was and um, what changes needed to happen to their job description and uh, what, uh, how they could be supported, right? And sort of like, um, just, you know, learning something like that made me rethink like 
my own job and like how I treated my research assistants and my, my teaching assistants mm -hmm. and all of that. And sort of seeing like, you sort of learn how certain values play out in life. And then you're like, oh, how can I incorporate this into this other aspect of my life? Um, where, you know, maybe I'm the person that's responsible, you know, for um, employees or, or students or, or so forth. So um, I bring that up, like how serving in the open door helped me rethink how I did my job, hmm. how I treated other people um, that helped me uh, operationalize it in a way around the values that I have as a Christian, because I was modeling off of like a, a Christian organization in which taking care of each other and uh, encouraging and supporting mm -hmm. each other is like one of the core values. Um, yeah. And so I, I sort of started to see these, um, uh, these connections. The, um, the rule of life was like another way that really helped me to think of like, how do I use my time? Like mm -hmm. what's, what's precious? Um, what are the things that matter to me as a, as a scholar, what are the things that matter to me as a teacher? What are the things that matter to me as a husband? What are the things that matter to me um, as a father, as a brother, as a son? You know, and you're trying to say, well, how does that shape my day? What mm -hmm. are the things that I um, end up spending my time on? Um, and so that was like uh, another uh, exercise that really helped me um, rethink my life and rethink the way the choices I was making. Mm -hmm. um, I think another aspect, you know, you were talking about meditation earlier. And so like in the, in the open door, there's sort of this contemplative practice that's really encouraged. Um, and, you know, how to uh, spend time, like just, and just being mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, as a spiritual practice was like something that got incorporated into my um, rule of life. Mm -hmm. So like, um, when things are going really well, I'm meditating in the morning. Uh, I'm doing my devotions mm -hmm. before getting to work. Um, there were other aspects like you, you mentioned riding the bike um, and getting exercise, uh, but you know that makes me feel better physically and mentally. Um, mm -hmm. It gives me uh, extra reserve of patience. Um, you know, coming home from work when you've had a bad day, like that uh, thirty-minute bike ride helps you to kind of forget the day right and yep. uh you know um so i i just noticed the, all these connections between what i was learning in the open door and how it uh, helped me to change my way of being um at work and with my students and uh with my family that's awesome and it it's cool i think because it it's kind of a paradigm shift for a lot of us to to see all of all of our lives as as spiritual like everything <laughs> rob bell says everything is spiritual and to really live into that through a rule of life that doesn't just list the quote spiritual things like the meditation and i want to read my bible more but am i living into the world in ways that that demonstrate a desire for people to thrive for the earth to be healthy like all of that all that all that matters, um, I think, <laughs> to to the creator and to really believe that and put it into practice in how we live our lives. And many of us, I think a lot of Christians, uh, like they believe in good doing good things and but they they lack the theological um framework to see all of life as as truly spiritual and um I think that's something that I, I've learned from you and, and many others at Open Doors. You know, all of it matters. Um, all of it has the potential for God to 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 take, you know, really take part in in who we are as people. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, earlier you were kind of talking about um, indigenous knowledge. Yeah. And, uh, and I think... There's kind of a, a question that I have, uh, which is around like, if you find yourself in a position of privilege, then how do you lift other people up? Mm -hmm. How do you help other people? Um, how do you use the position that you have to help other people? 
it sort of becomes like one one of the fundamental questions. Mm-hmm. Um, and and that can kind of really drive, you know, what you do. Um, so, uh, for example, one student had asked me, uh, her, her name's uh, Gilly Johnson, and she was really interested in feminism and gender studies. And she sort of said, well, you know, what's the relationship between design and gender studies? Um, hmm. And I said, you know, that that's a great, great question. I, I've never taken a gender studies class, so I, I don't mm. feel like I'm. You probably know more about it than I do. Um, and but we, but I said, but we should continue talking about this and trying to figure out like, um, what is that relationship, and and how can you know, you be a designer and sort of be pushing for gender equality um, and feminism through through the work that you're doing. And uh, we, we kept on talking about it. And then it turned out that that Gilly, uh, one of her professors um, uh, who, who taught in the gender studies track at CMU, uh, that, uh, her name is uh, Kate. Oh boy, I'm going to forget her last name right now. Kate Hamilton. And so uh, I knew Kate because she also worked at the Everly Center of Teaching Excellence. And so Gilly basically got the three of us talking about this and we kind of figured out that uh, the class that I taught on sustainability, that next year we would teach it based on um, uh, gender studies and uh, feminism and uh, gender equality. Huh. And because I, I didn't feel comfortable because you know feminism is an established discipline in gender studies, like you can get a PhD in it. Yeah, I didn't feel comfortable stepping in in the classroom and and trying to teach something I didn't really know. Right. Uh, but Kate and I then. Uh, partnered up and we decided to co-teach the class that semester. And the, the, the premise was that the methods that I developed to design for the values of sustainability could be used for the values of feminism and gender equality. And, uh, you know, Kate uh, was working at the Everly Center. She was uh, then, um, so she wasn't teaching that semester. Um, and so I kind of found myself in this like position of like, how do I, I needed her expertise, but I also wanted it to be a fair, like, um, so we decided to co-teach, hmm. even though for the registrar, she was just a guest lecturer that showed up for a couple of classes, but to the students and to me, like she was like the co-instructor of the course. And so she, she would come in like uh, several times during the semester to, to guide us through the readings and uh, um, that were focused on. Um, what do you envision a really healthy practice of, being open and humble like that, um, how do we develop that? Well, I think uh, it begins with sort of curiosity. Mm. So if you're curious about stuff and you give yourself permission to, you know, buy that book or read that article or listen to that TED talk. Um, and I think it starts with curiosity, sort of the willingness to uh, to learn about things that you don't know um, and then making time. So like, you know, when I'm washing the dishes uh, in the evening, usually there's, I'm, I'm watching a Ted talk or mm. you're hearing um, something. Um, I make it a, a point of like doing my, um, my devotions either before I do my me- meditation mm-hmm. or, or after. Um, and so like, starting to find like these little snippets of time um, to, to it's kind of devote to the practices. Like I think um, meditation is really important because you learn to study your mind, mm. you learn to notice like how it works and uh, you know, that battle that you're going through of just focusing on your breath and, and not letting your mind race. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, I think that struggle helps you to notice your mind and to notice like what are the distraction techniques that it uses uh, on you and um, you learn to acknowledge the thoughts as they come up and and go back to your breath. Um, mm-hmm. But then, you know, I make it a point also of reading at night. I always read something at night that's not work related. Hmm. It's just something I'm curious about, something I want to learn more about. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it's curiosity and then making time for the, the that curiosity to um, materialize itself. Um, and it, I know that these things might sound self-indulgent, 
and and maybe they are. Um, but I, I would argue that for the work that I do, like learning these new things, um, I get to share it with other people, right? And so some of these things that seem really random and self-indulgent then inform the lessons that I have to teach. They help me when I'm working with students that are, you know, doing a thesis or working on a project and they, you know, and it's sort of like, oh, well, I read this thing or I heard this thing that might be helpful for you. And so even what seems really self-indulgent, like can, can help you help other people. And mm. so I think the reason I got hooked on teaching was I realized that my curiosity wasn't just uh, something uh, that I did um, for myself. It's actually something that can really help other people. It can help, hmm. um, you know, my son and, and my wife when we have conversations and friends. And, you know, it, it's sort of like reframing that, like from this is something that I'm doing, selfishly doing, and I f should feel guilty about. So actually, this is something really generous that I'm doing. Hmm. I'm educating myself and I'm learning new things because then I'll have the opportunity to share it with other people. Yeah. Um, sh should the, you know, it's not like I'm out lecturing people about this stuff, but but should the situation come up, I have stuff to add and stuff to, to draw from. And, you know, it's kind of like the more you learn, the less you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Maybe the more uh, curious you become. Yeah, that's yeah, that's good. So, um, we can we can end with this. I uh, a month or so ago, I I put a book that I thought looked like something you would like uh, in front of your front door, and it was a book that I bought for myself too. Have you got to got to look at that at all? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's right next to my. Uh, reading uh so i <laughs> i have different places where i stack books yeah you know and so there's a stack of books next to my bed then there's a, a reading chair that i like downstairs nice. and the the low-tech uh yeah. book is is right next to the chair where i read downstairs because that's where i like to look at it i've got a good a good reading light there and nice yeah yeah look it's low-tech like indigenous wisdom and design something like that um so interesting i just you know started looking at it and it, it's really about not indigenous wisdom of the past but indigenous wisdom right now that we can all be inspired by and learn from um really really cool book yeah yeah so actually john i i was meeting with uh, one of my phd students uh earlier today and she's been she's done some work uh on garfield community farms uh, oh yeah pure uh-huh and uh she was talking about uh you know how um you know certain ideas from australia that have to do with permaculture you know sort of have have, have made their way into garfield community farms sure and then uh, she was studying a, a, another um, urban farm in China that was based on the same ideas of permaculture. And we we're kind of talking about this idea of cosmopolitan localism. Hmm. And it's sort of like there's these ideas that like get put out there, but then they have to be grounded and rooted in mm -hmm. a local reality. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm just mentioning it because that low-tech book sort of like you really see the rootedness uh, of the ideas and how they play out in, in, in certain cultures. But then there's always the question of like, if it's a good idea, like we could take it somewhere else yeah, and, and make it come to life, maybe in a slightly different way mm -hmm. because the local community is different. The values might be slightly different, right. the wet weather and so forth. But like the, the core of the idea is the same. Mm -hmm. And I was just really in, you know, uh, kind of intrigued by um, just the realization of like how um, something came out of Australia, ended up in uh, Garfield Community Farms and <laughs> other incredible places around the world. Yeah. Yeah. The the design principles of permaculture, the, the idea with those and different different permaculture teachers have different principles, but the idea is that the principles, no matter where you are on the planet, they, they can be applied for like creating permanent 
agriculture systems and permanent culture systems. So yeah, it's, it, it'll look different in every setting. Um, but those design principles, uh, are, are, are amazing ways to transform how we live. And there's also, I mean, it's interesting, maybe we, I'd love to talk with you about this later, but there's also critique of permaculture that's pretty, pretty forceful right now that much of what permaculture is about is really, it belongs to other people, that it is indigenous knowledge and um, permaculture is just the, the white appropriation of indigenous knowledge. And so some of the learning that I'm trying to do right now is to really understand the indigenous knowledge. And if we call it permaculture in the city, great, that's fine. But to not, uh, not assume that the indigenous knowledge either didn't ever exist or doesn't currently exist and really look for ways to learn from indigenous people, um, not just the Australian guys. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. So, it's kind of a quest of like, how do we learn about what the local indigenous culture was? And then there'd be a question of like, how does it integrate into the, the framework that came out of Australia? Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I guess that that's becoming, good. becoming even more local, right? Like finding those connections. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's great. Yeah. And I've, I mean, in that quest, I've found, you know, in Pittsburgh, there are just not many indigenous people, but they exist today. And there's some like really brilliant people out there to, to continue to learn from and, um, and, you know, partner with in different ways. So yeah, it's been a good learning process. Right, right, right. Um, this has been great. I, uh, we're at, we're just about at an hour any parting shots? Yeah, yeah, I was, um, I think one of the questions that people might wonder about is like, how do I reconcile like my personal values as a Christian with, mm -hmm. uh, you know, working in a, a university and, um, you know, cause like it's, it's an international university. There's people from like uh, all over the world, people from different religious backgrounds and, right. I, I think it's just a question of trying to figure out like, what, what do we have in common? Mm -hmm. What are the things that we care about and how do you support and encourage people? Like, you know, we're similar, but we're also different. And so, you know, th th there's a lot of things that we have in, in common. So how do we focus in on those? Mm -hmm. And I think, how do you live out your faith in a way that people might see you as a role model? without mm -hmm. ever knowing what your faith is or mm -hmm. what your beliefs just saying oh that he's he's a good person or mm -hmm. she's a good person or, or they're good people mm -hmm. um and i think living in that way is sort of like what we're called to do mm -hmm. um, and um and that's what i worry about is like am i being a good person like am i living out the values um of christ like I can tell you that your quest to live out those values has been, um, I mean, it's, it's evident in your life. It, people see it and, uh, your humbleness allows you to, to fully live the way of Jesus. I mean, as much as any of us can fully live that, um, you're able to, to live into that in ways that are really inspiring, um, to me. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. I mean, I think it's the way, right? And so it means each day, are you taking a step, mm -hmm. right? Yep. And so are you? <laughs> it's a journey. It's a journey process. Yeah. Yep. One day at a time. Yep. Not that we'll, we'll ever get there, but like, are, are we making progress, I guess? Yep. Yep. Well, John, thank you so much. This has been wonderful to have an opportunity to chat with you. Yeah, I, you know, I said, I've said to people, it's it partially that I want other people to hear this conversation, but also during the pandemic, like there's just a whole lot of great people that I haven't, I feel like I haven't had as much time to just chat with. So this takes the place of, you know, having a cup of tea or a beer on the front porch. Uh, and I really appreciate it. And we get to share this with the rest of the community. So yeah, thanks for taking the time and um, 
peace be with you as you keep doing this this good work okay peace be with you and thank you so much yep thanks Thanks for listening to the Open Doors podcast this week. Um, if you have any questions, check out our website, pghopendoor.net. That's P-G-H as in Pittsburgh, opendoor.net. Um, all of our music most weeks is either me sitting in my uh, back room in my house playing my guitar for you, or it's a little more polished. Uh, and it is our band called This Side of Eve, which primarily is my wife and I, Alyssa Creasy, is her name. Check out our music at thissideofeve.com. We hope to use more music from other folks in the community, so keep listening for that as we uh, kind of broaden who it is that, uh, that we get to hear from musically on the podcast. But enjoy this song from our new album today. It's called, the album is called More to Come. Right,